This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Sad to say, uh, Dr. Wang, my esteemed co-host, is unable to join for this uh, conversation, but I am beyond belief and over the moon honored to have back on Dr. John Adler. Uh, Dr. Adler is one of those luminaries in our field that really needs no introduction. Longtime listeners of our show will remember he was one of our first guests back from our inception at CNS in San Francisco so many years ago in 2019. I think he was on episode 10 talking about uh, the frontiers and the pioneers of neurosurgery looking for innovations. And uh, Dr. Adler's career has been uh, really defined by innovation. Uh, Just to briefly uh, give some context for maybe our younger listeners who haven't heard the show before and aren't familiar with Dr. Adler's work, Um, he is a a pioneer within neurosurgery, I think very notably known for the development of the CyberKnife technology that we're all familiar with as well as more relevant for today's conversation, establishing the online journal Curious. And so again, I'll point listeners back to episode 10 of the show where Dr. Adler first came on and kind of talked about his career of innovation, how he sees the role of innovation and creativity in our field and and where that might be going. But, you know, I, I could ramble all day about this. Dr. Adler, thank you so much and welcome back to the show. Thank you, John Paul. So we were just talking before the recording started, Dr. Adler. The subject for today's conversation is less happy, so to speak, and is kind of about a a growing stifling of open communication within media at large, but in particular and most troublingly within scientific uh, media. And the, the way this came about, I was on Twitter one day just mindlessly scrolling as people of my generation do, and I saw the following tweet from Dr. Adler that he, he was kind enough to let me read aloud to contextualize this conversation. So on August 3rd, you wrote this, Dr. Adler. Twitter suspended a curious account for showcasing a peer-reviewed article reporting five cases of autoimmune bullous dermatosis associated with COVID vaccination. Somehow, censorship is supposed to increase confidence in science. Unscientific morons are clearly in charge at Twitter. So I read that tweet and I thought, okay, there's a hot take if ever I've heard one. I need to see if we can get uh, Dr. Adler on the air to talk about this. So maybe for our listeners, could you contextualize a bit about what was going on, what was going through your head the day you posted that tweet? Well, I don't know that I would feel any differently today than I did on the day that I did write that tweet. Um, I think it's, uh, it's sad that People who in good faith have a scientific argument to make are unable to make it and are, quite frankly, censored. And they're not censored necessarily by people who know much of anything. So there is a sad to acknowledge a sense of political correctness that's gone through science in the last uh, several years. And I think, you know, really brought to a head with COVID where there are some concepts that are acceptable to say in polite company and others that are not. And uh, by nature, I am a contrarian. You know, my, I, that's, I think most innovators are. I mean, to be an innovator, you have to think differently about the world in the first place. Uh, but so when you shut up communication, you're shutting up innovation. 
And uh, that's a bad thing for the world. And it's not just a bad thing today. It's been a bad thing for thousands of years. You know, you only need to go back to Galileo and understand that in Copernicus and realize that, you know, through human history, people who thought about the world differently have been, have been shut down, uh, not by the Pope. Uh, today, I guess Twitter rivals the power of the Pope in some ways. And of course, I feel, you know, given the fact that I even have a, a condominium right down the street from Twitter, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like, you know, those guys are my backyard, they're my neighbors, and that gives me special umbrage to kind of call them out, call them morons for whether that's polite or not. There isn't a, truly an element of truth to it. Fair enough. Now, I, I'm not sure to what extent you're involved with the day-to-day -day runnings and particularly the social media operations of Curious. And I know there's several Curious accounts for the various subsections of, of the journal, but do you know, is that account still active? Have they reactivated the account? Oh, well, that was just a specific, mean, we have uh, every specialty has their own little Twitter account. And of course yeah. I have my own accounts as well. Uh, I can, really can't tell you if it's been reactivated. You know, it's, uh, uh, I, well, I'm, I live here in the heart of Silicon Valley and I just totally decry this self-censorship or, I mean, it's what's happened is self-censorship. The minute you have external censorship, you find people like myself finding that they need to very carefully gauge their words uh, lest they really are censored by the authorities at Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I mean, we've had the same issue inside Facebook where, mm -hmm. for example, yeah, images of, uh, of women with breast cancer, you know, a, a post-surgical mastectomy or something is deemed obscene. And somehow, some way, that's not uh, acceptable inside the world of Facebook. Again, there's, there's no basis in common sense. But what you've found is, I think, just this collective societal effort to censor itself, uh, lest they, you know, cross some, you know, a, you know, nebulous line of of political correctness of political um, thinking of the time. I mean, I, I despair. And of course, Stanford was deeply involved in a lot of the political correctness in and around COVID. Uh, there being several, I think, you know, important contrarian voices to be heard that came out of Stanford, not necessarily agree or don't agree with them, but that doesn't matter. They were in with good intentions trying to convey a, an alternative perspective about COVID. And I know some of these guys very, very well. And yet the community at large, including very much at Stanford, very much at Stanford, tried to shut these people down. And that really truthfully pissed me off. And it's a very unscientific way uh, of approaching knowledge. If there's something that you're so unwilling to hear, um, that's the kind of thing I really want to hear. <laughs> right. Now, I, I wonder because, you know, so this year I turned 30 just to out myself, but contextualize my perspective on these things. And this experience of the COVID pandemic, of course, I experienced it as a, a member of the field of medicine and working in a hospital at, at, the, at, at the time professionally. But this is the first time in my recollection within my lifespan 
of such a profound shift in how information is approached, where in our public discourse, both personally and professionally, and of course, politically, information was treated not simply as a factual matter, but the the perceived or feared impact of that information was treated almost more importantly than whether or not something was true. So for example, with, with you know the rollout of the vaccines and the various safety measures that were um, recommended or not recommended for COVID, whether or not something was actually true, our leadership and people leading the discourse online and on the news seem to place more value on, do we think this will have a positive outcome for our population rather than is what I'm saying actually true? I wonder if in your lifespan, Dr. Adler, and in particular within the span of your career, working not only in medicine and academic medicine, but also as the founder and head of a major journal, have you ever seen a period like this where the truth and the factuality of information as it was discussed in public discourse kind of took second seat to the practicality or the usefulness of that information? Um, no, I, I think certainly the, what happened with COVID is the most extreme example I've seen in my lifetime, but it does unfortunately now made me go back and question a lot of stuff I've heard in life. And mm. there is a perception, and I've heard this repeatedly around COVID, that, that when experts have spoken, people should just shut up and listen to the experts. I mean, that has been... How do we know something is true? Well, it's because it was told by experts. I mean, that's was kind of the logic of the last few years. And, and I've made a career out of questioning the experts. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that's why I've been successful. And for example, the basic tenets of radiotherapy for a hundred years have really just crumbled um, under, the, uh, under the questioning and the clinical practices of people like me who developed around radio surgery. It turns out that it was all a house of cards. It was all literally utter bullshit. And yet it was dogma. And yet hundreds of million, billion, no, no, not hundreds, but billions of dollars had been spent validating these precepts. Insurance reimbursement was all designed around it. You know, Medicare billing was all designed because it must be true because experts had said this was true for almost 100 years, and yet it was all bullshit. And so, I mean, that's my perspective in life. And so when people talk about COVID, that's, I felt the same way, but it's not just COVID. Um, I'm sure if we should talk about back pain in the same way. I recently saw that, that it turns out there was an article in Nature that came out that, that argued pretty convincingly that, that the... Um, that the uh, serotonin uptake blockers for, for depression, which have been advocated by experts for the last 30, 40 years, you know, without a contrary voice, have now all been found to be not useful, unhelpful. So, I mean, how much damning can you be? And of course, I mean, I think one of the most telling issues at the time where I do not claim to be expert, but it now makes me question is, is around global warming. Well, mm. you know, I certainly, everything I've been led to believe suggests global warming from man-made global warming is very real. And in my own life, I have tried to embrace 
the idea that I as an individual and society as a whole has a role to prevent more global warming from carbon dioxide. So I believe, but the fact that I've heard that dissenting voices have been shut up, I, I despair there. I despair. I want to hear what dissenting, no matter what I believe, I want to hear dissenting voices. That's how we find truth. We find truth not through experts, but we find truth by, by expert opinion being questioned by doubters. So um, I, I don't have any easy answers. And you can see this is a, a hundreds of years, if not thousands of year old problem of humanity. Uh, but I, no matter what, I will be one of those doubting contrarian voices. That's hard to yeah. shut up. Yeah, you know, it is very interesting. I, I think that I am somewhat of a reflexive skeptic myself. And in recent years, even honestly, before um, all of the COVID, you know, the COVID pandemic occurred and the controversy surrounding it, I, I find myself constantly returning to almost an epistemological perspective where if someone states a fact to me, with, you know, as they see it to be a fact with authority, I, I kind of reflexively, I don't just question, is that true? But I start to think, how could one even know that that is true? And I start to, to wonder to myself, how, you know, could that even be proven, much less um, it, has it been proved, so to speak? And so I, I think, of, like you say, global warming that, um, you know, climatologists make arguments about the state of the earth dating back thousands and millions of years or in the case of COVID, which we've been discussing, as the vaccines rolled out, it seemed like they were released to the public so quickly after their development. I thought to myself, how do we know it's safe? How do we know that there aren't long-term side effects? And arguments were made about how in, in the vast majority of, of vaccine research, you know, any major side effects are seen within so many months. And so we can project that it, it's safe to administer because we have that many months of follow-up on the test subjects. And there seem to be logical arguments, but it, it always gets me to a perspective where I think not only is this true, but could we even know that's true? And I, I think there's something um, intrinsic to the neurosurgery perspective about that, because we, we often joke amongst ourselves and we say it on the show a lot that, you know, there's no evidence for anything we do. Ha ha where so much of it is based on tradition that's passed down and the experience of neurosurgeons uh, that they pass to their trainees because it's so difficult to ethically do a study within neurosurgery. But thinking about that question of not just do we know X, but can we know X? Or how could that authority on the television know that what he's saying is true, whether or not they've even proved it? It seems like that question can be raised for almost any argument or any fact that is uh, asserted or offered in the public discourse. And yet this issue in particular, this COVID pandemic and the vaccines and the treatments, et cetera, seems to have been treated so differently from these other controversies, even global warming, which has been a huge breaking point in our society for as long as I can remember. But this one in particular has people silenced um, and other parts of the world, you know, you know newspapers taken down, uh, people banned from social media. And so, Dr. Adler, wh why do you think this among we you know, we've had pandemics in the recent past. We had SARS. We had MERS. We had the Ebola scare. 
um, which obviously didn't affect as many people worldwide, but we've had recent health crises. We've had crises of terror. We've had wars. Why do you think this one in particular seems to have so polarized us such that we're seeing the kind of censorship that led to this conversation? Well, I, I wish I had a, a simple answer, but I think the truth of the matter is people were scared hmm. and the society at large was scared and the uh, reflexive impulse of you know, government, mostly government officials, but academics as well, is to, um, uh, in the face of fear, give, make everything appear black and white, give people black and white answers, and, and really not trusting people. It's, so I, I think it's, uh, it's a lack of trust on the part of the quote-unquote expert class, on the part of uh, you know, public health authority figures, to really trust the public with the truth. And they feel that it is not only it, it's not it's not only their it's literally their job it's their mandate to settle fears and tell people what to do. It's not their job to tell them the truth. And they didn't have all the facts. I get it. They didn't have all the facts. So, but it is unacceptable to say you didn't have all the facts. It's unacceptable to say that these vaccines will prevent reinfection. Because you have to have make everything black and white. And if you now look back, you now now's a good time to do it. Look back over the last two and a half years, and you'll find that the truth, I think, lies somewhere between what the experts said and what the skeptics had to say. That neither was right. And and I won't, and the experts were ultimately not necessarily any more right than the skeptics. I mean, and a lot, of the, a lot of these skeptics weren't nearly as quote-unquote expert as the quote-unquote experts were. And then you go right up to the upper echelons of, of Fauci or Birch or whoever the head of uh, the CDC was at the time and uh, Rachel, Rachel Walensky. I mean, they, it's okay. They give you their best guess, and that's their job. And, and they're welcome to their best guess, but so isn't the skeptic entitled to their voice. And, and, you know, there's the old saying, you know, what's the answer for bad speech? Well, it's more speech. More speech. And it's not that bad speech is it's in, it's inevitable, but it's okay. In a world of science, the way to address bad science is more science and more questioning and more study. And we didn't let that happen. And I can tell you, Stanford was in part ground central for this on both sides of the equation. So I watched this up and close. And with that idea in mind, I don't, I'll give you a, a plug for Curious. I mean, Curious has now put a solicit, uh, solicited papers for people who, uh, for public health types to now look back over the public health crisis of COVID and tell us what did they get wrong two and a half years ago? What did they get wrong? And I take this a little personally because I can tell you that, um, you know, I, I'm, run a company here in, in San Mateo County here in California. And we were one of the first uh, locations where the uh, where COVID was found. And they, and the local public health guy was shut, you know, locked down all our businesses. And literally within a, a few days of this happening, I sent him an email. I found his direct email line. And I said, you know, like, uh, uh, just assure me, please assure me that in, in your public health decision-making here, you're not 
just thinking about viral infections, but you're thinking about the effects of lockdowns in terms of people's livelihoods, in terms of people's education, and just in terms of civil liberties. And basically what I got back from him was, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. Mm. Literally, it was that simple. And, and so being the skeptic, I, of course, <laughs> pissed off, being contrarian, I'm pissed off. So I, and from the start, I felt that there was something not right with the COVID, with this COVID uh, scare. And I think it's intrinsic to our society, which we need to be careful about because now look back at a country that did shut down all contrary voices, that didn't want to hear anything but the experts from the highest levels of the political class make decisions. And that's China. And China is a mess right now. It's a mess. It's been a mess for half a year now because no one, there was no skeptical voice. Now they'll tell you how wonderful it is. There aren't, you know, that they have fewer infections than anybody else, but the non-infectious fallout from that disease has badly hurt China because they shut down all contrary voices. Right. Well, you know, it reminds me of a bad joke I heard recently. I asked my friend in China, how's life? And he said, I can't complain. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, hearing you raise these issues and, and talking about, as I frequently rant about to my friends um, and think about myself deeply, you, you talked about the role of our public servants, or as some might call them, our government officials. But I still like to think of them as public servants. And it, it almost makes me think of Plato's idea of the philosopher king who knows all and chooses whether to tell the noble lie to protect the society. And, and it, it always makes me return to that question, do we elect officials to enact our will and represent us in that way, or do we elect officials to do what they think is best for us? And I, I think that both of those mentalities are represented in our population but our votes all go toward the same team of officials. And so you might go to the polls and elect someone because you say, I'm telling you, go to Washington, go to the state capitol and do X. But your neighbor might elect an official, uh, go to a poll and say, I trust you. You seem like a smart fella and your values seem to be like mine. So I want you to go to the capitol. I want you to go to Washington and do what you think is best for me. And the votes all get funneled down the same system to elect one person who might have one or some amalgam of those two philosophies. And so then we wind up with a government composed of some people who say, I'm here to do the will of my constituents, and some people who I think troublingly for you, based on hearing you in this conversation, Dr. Adler, some people who say, I'm here to do what's best for the nation whether or not the people are happy about it, I know what's best. And that can be really troubling for someone, as you say, like yourself, who's a contrarian and a skeptic and who questions authorities. But I'm also reminded of another quote from the classics that I always think of, uh, Cicero, who, who decried in the Roman Senate, o tempores o mores, o times, o customs. And as we were talking about, disasters have happened before. Pandemics have happened before. But this one seems to have been treated so differently. And as you said, there is no simple answer. But I think at least one big variable we can point at that's present today that wasn't present for the Spanish flu or World War II or even Vietnam when we saw wild protests overlying a silent majority. 
um, something we have today is social media. And this conversation, again, was born over quieting of a quote unquote dissenting opinion on social media. So do you think, I mean, I, I won't even make it as simple as yes or no, because I think you can't deny that it's a variable. So I'll say, to what extent, Dr. Adler, do you think the advent of social media on our society and the role that it has grown to fill in our society, to what extent do you think just the presence of social media has caused the kind of reaction to social fracture surrounding this pandemic that we're seeing and experiencing and this response in terms of controlling and coercing or suppressing our speech about it? Well, I, I don't think it's the cause, but I do think it certainly fans the flames. It's like throwing gasoline mm. on the fire. So uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. That social media was a huge determinant of the emotions that have been you know, generated over the last couple of years. But I, I would like to make a point that I don't think has been made often enough. And I think it is salient, especially to neurosurgeons, because some of us are cut from a different cloth. I think one of the things that ails us in the modern world is that we have so little to complain about. And mm. that and what ails us is that we've never to the in the modern world, we have lost touch with death and illness and sickness. And we've softened as a people since you're quoting Cicero and, yes. and the Romans, although I'm not as erudite as you. Um, I, I doubt that. I think, I think humanity is, to, to be blunt about it, is soft and weak. And, you know, in earlier eras, I mean, people commonly died at home. People saw death up and close. People died throughout every stage of life. And it was not surprising that death was part of, of life, part of human existence, much less having gone through horrific wars, like, you know, the Second World War. And even Vietnam was pretty atrocious. Mm. And, and the idea was that, that humanity had not mastered death. But I think, and maybe to blame medicine, is increasingly we kind of have conjured up this view that death is optional. And you hear these silly people running around Silicon Valley, many with billions of dollars in their pocket, that, you know, if we, you know, we're all going to live to 100, 120. Why not? Why not forever? Uh, I happen to know someone who's quite convinced. He's very, very, you know, multi-billionaire kind of guy. Yeah, he's going to live to, he's quite convinced he's living to 120. And if he spends a little bit more money judiciously here, who knows? Maybe 200. So hmm. I, I think we've lost touch with death. And COVID in part played off of that because it made death now palpable to people who weren't less than 80 years old, to maybe somebody in their 20s and 30s and 40s, because some of them have freaked out the most. I, I'm shocked by how, you know, I see 35-year-olds, healthy 35-year-olds who literally locked themselves up in their rooms for two years and, you know, ordered from... Uh, you know, from Uber Eats or something and just, you know, live their life on a computer screen. So I, I do think humanity is softened and I love the word snowflakes, you know, where we've, we've become in many ways a culture of snowflakes and, 
and COVID preyed off that reality. You know, I, I promised Dr. Wang that I would channel him when we found out he couldn't be on this episode. And you could not have teed me up better because I distinctly remember once when I was in medical school, Dr. Wang opened a lecture he gave to my class with a picture of a snowflake talking about this very concept. And he finished that introduction by stating uh, very directly that the defining characteristic of a snowflake is that it melts. <laughs> and I, I think that that really uh, hits home for the point you're trying to make. And that actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because you're right. We hadn't really touched on that aspect of our societal approach and reaction to this pandemic, that it, it does conjure that specter of death that we have so put out of our minds as a culture in the modern world, because I couldn't agree more. We tell ourselves, even if we haven't, but we tell ourselves that we have conquered death. And I think it's easy for people my age and younger to, to put it off and not think about it. And I wonder, do you think there's some element of, uh, you know, because again, we're, we're here talking about the the control of speech and the, the suppression of speech. Do you think there's some element where when we ask our leaders to silence those who say we don't have control over this pandemic, it's almost wishful thinking because we want to believe that the authoritative doctor on the screen knows what he's talking about, what he says is true, and he says, this disease will do X, Y, Z, but take this shot, take this pill, wear this mask, and you are safe and you are protected. And it's almost like magic words. Do you think there's some aspect of wishful thinking where the, the population doesn't want to hear dissent, not because they're true believers, but because they don't want their faith in medicine shaken? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, like, I like the placebo effect, you yeah. know, and a little bit of placebo effect, even on a public health basis. And I'll argue some of this is a placebo. That's okay. Have a touch of placebo is okay. But to mislead people into thinking the placebo is a cure uh, and, and, and deprive them of liberty. I mean, that is a grave injustice. And, and I do think that medicine has grossly oversold our ability to make people healthy, keep people alive, that we we are as guilty in some ways as much of selling snake oil. And, and I mean modern allopathic medicine coming from Harvard and Yale and Stanford, that somehow we, we know so much that you just tell what we, you follow what we're doing and we will take care of all your problems. And, and, a, and a perfect case in point for neurosurgeons specifically is like pain. Like how much unnecessary surgery, in my opinion, is done and spine patients, for example, to say, well, we're going to remove all, we know how to get rid of all pain. Instead of saying pain is part of life, a little bit of pain is what you need to accept in your life. And mm -hmm. yet we try to well, take this pill or more likely have this operation and you'll have no pain. And I think that's uh, an injustice. And I think maybe it's, we drank the own, our own Kool-Aid uh, in part, you know, uh, reinforced by generous reimbursement, but but it's it's that's not truthful. I mean, we owe the world fundamentally truth. A little bit of placebo, okay, I'm okay with it. But when we pivot beyond a little bit of placebo, we are not living up to our Hippocratic oath, and we're not making the world a better place. So I I 
Loken, Loken, let's acknowledge the limitations of our specialty. Let's acknowledge the limitations of, of medicine. And for God's sakes, let's acknowledge the limitations of government officials who we all know are, are just barely competent in most spheres of the world today. Amen to that. Well, you know, I think it bears repeating again, just the the cause at the proximate cause of this conversation was the suppression of an article simply stating that five patients had an allergic reaction to an administered medication, the most benign humdrum run of the mill kind of publication, but necessary reporting uh, in the field of medicine that you can imagine. And yet it was deemed unacceptable by the lords of Twitter to let the scientific community know that there could be a reaction associated with a drug. Um, you know, ecce si muove, and yet it still moves. So Dr. Adler, I want to thank you so much for coming on and giving us your time and sharing your considered and passionate opinions. I think that um, whereas before on the show, we, we framed you as the innovator of neurosurgery, I'm going to redub you the intellectual pugilist of neurosurgery. <laughs> And uh, we talked before coming on the show about perhaps having you back on to have an a intellectual tete-a-tete with someone who might genuinely want to represent the, uh, the contrapositive that, you know, misrepresenting information to the public might be good if it's in their interest or suppression of information deemed contrary to the accepted, uh, uh, the accepted facts by the experts might be okay. Um, and so... You know, Dr. Adler, I, I think that myself and Dr. Wayne, our listeners, would be overjoyed to have you back on if we could find such uh, another discussant for you. If anyone listening would like to come on, please feel to reach out to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Um, Dr. Adler, any closing remarks or, or would you like to throw a gauntlet to your potential challenger? <laughs> yeah, anybody who thinks uh, censorship is a good idea, come on, let's let's talk about it because... I really I feel adamant and passionate that only by listening to the cynics of the world, the skeptics of the world, will we ever really know truth. Truth is a, an elusive is an elusive value, and it requires the skeptics in the world to express their skepticism. So, but really, I enjoyed this a lot, JP. This was great fun, and give my best to Mike Wang. I will. It is always an honor and a pleasure to speak with you, sir. Um, as you so uh, so well brought into our uh, conversation today, one of my favorite phrases, the antidote to bad speech is more speech. Um, so I thank you for sharing your speech with us today. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.